I'll just pray before we look at this. Father, as we take a look back into history this afternoon, I pray that you will uh, use this time not only to inform us maybe about our roots, but also, and even more so, to uh, give us a new sense of wonder that we have your word in our own language, in our own hands. We can open it and read the good news of Jesus Christ for ourselves in it. And we realize that's a privilege that through the centuries many, many people have not had. So we give you thanks for it again and I pray that you will renew our appreciation uh, for what we have and for those who struggled uh, to give it to us and those that you used uh, to provide it for us. We ask this for your glory. Amen. This is the second of our talks on the Reformation. Last month, Steve set the scene for us by giving us an introduction and an overview. We heard about the five solas of the Reformation. And we're getting a chance to look at those in home groups. And we also last time gave away this little book. And there are plenty of copies left. So if you didn't get one last time, they are free. And there are a really good introduction to the main themes of the Reformation. So you can have one of those. And the table also has a free poster on it. Given the uh, five solas, and as I said, we're going through those in the home groups as well. And to go alongside that for tonight and then the next two table talks, we're going to be looking at some of the most significant people from the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and William Tyndale. Today it's Martin Luther, but I'm going to start off with a plug for this coming Thursday evening. As I said this morning, we're showing a film about Luther. That's going to be here starting at 7.30. And so before I begin talking about Luther, I'm going to show a trailer for the film, which will hopefully whet your appetite for it. I hope you can join us for that on Thursday. If you come a little bit early, we'll try to start at half past seven. And hopefully this uh, talk will help you to get more out of the film. But I need to introduce these three biographical talks by saying that as we present these individuals to you, we're not giving a blanket endorsement to everything they did and everything they said. I think it's pretty important to be clear on that. We don't do that kind of thing with biblical characters. When we look at Samson, for example, or even King David, we do not have to insist everything those men did and said was right. But we do know God used them in their time and their situation to accomplish great things for his glory and for the good of his people. So as Steve and I introduce these reformers to you, we're doing it with the same understanding. They were great men, they had great courage, great insight, they had great perseverance, and they had flaws, all of them did. They did and said things that were not always gracious and not always right but God used them to accomplish great things. So our aim in this is not to glorify uh, people. We want to glorify God for what he did through these people. And we start today then with Martin Luther. Another Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, described Luther as a volcano. I think it's just about the perfect term for him. 
it's hard to think of a more larger-than-life character than Martin Luther. And his very last words are a good illustration of his approach to life. He said this, I will lie down in my coffin and give the worms a fat doctor to feast on. He was outrageous to the very end of his life. And we're going to look at Luther in five sections. Luther's time, his early life, his discovery of the gospel, his conflict with Rome, and then finally his life away from the cameras, away from all the publicity. So first of all, Luther's time. Steve mentioned this last month, but if we're going to understand Luther's life, we need to refresh our memory on the times that he lived in, particularly the state of religion at those times. Luther was born on November the 10th, 1483, in Eisleben in Germany. And the late 1400s was a time when religion had a massive influence. It was also a time of terrible spiritual darkness. The religion of the time was largely superstition. It centered on making pilgrimages to holy places, and there was a huge interest at that time in religious relics. Those were items that were supposedly connected to a saint. It could be anything really from a skull to a piece of clothing that the saint was supposed to have worn. One of the biggest collections of relics belonged to a man called Frederick the Wise. He's quite an important figure, apart from his relic collection. At this time, Germany was ruled by an emperor who was elected by seven German princes who were called electors. Luther lived in Saxony, and the elector of Saxony was Frederick the Wise. He's an important figure because he took a great liking to Luther, didn't always agree with him, but he liked him, and on many occasions he saved Luther's neck. I mention him here, though, because of his relic collection, which included, it was claimed, the foreskin of Jesus and hair from the Virgin Mary. That kind of thing was pretty typical at the time. Luther later said that there were enough pieces of the cross in circulation at the time to rebuild the whole city of Jerusalem. In other words, it was a fraud. One collection of relics had the skull of John the Baptist as a young man, and another skull from John the Baptist as an older man. Now, I'm Irish, I know, but even I can smell a rat with that one. It was a scam. But that was the focus of many people's religion, giving homage to religious relics. It was also a time when many men became priests. In some cities, as many as 10% of the population were priests. For many of them, it was just a career, often a comfortable career. So becoming a priest did not necessarily mean that you cared about people or that you had any interest in teaching God's Word to people. In fact, the Bible was an unknown book to most people, including priests and theologians. The only Bible around at the time was a Latin translation. It wasn't a great translation, and it was not widely available. Luther said he didn't see a Bible until he was 20 years old. So he was born at a time when religion certain kind, had massive influence, but there was almost complete ignorance of true religion 
as defined by God's word. And as you look back on that time, uh, Luther said, there is no more terrible disaster than a famine of the hearing of God's word. And there is no greater mercy than when God sends forth his word. And in his own time, Martin Luther was one of the men God used to end the famine. His era was not only a time of superstition and spiritual darkness, it was also a time of terrible corruption in the church. The Pope was supposed to provide moral and religious leadership, but a long line of popes utterly failed to do that. They had mistresses, they poisoned their rivals, and they fleeced the faithful for money through things like indulgences, which we'll come to in a few minutes. Priests were forbidden to marry, but they could pay a tax to be allowed to keep their concubines. They could pay another tax to make their illegitimate children officially legitimate. And if you had enough money, you could buy your way to the position of bishop or cardinal. It was a time of darkness and corruption, and the few voices that protested against it were executed as heretics. That's the environment Luther was born into. So we move on now to his early life. His parents, Hans and Margareta, were peasants, but Hans had become moderately wealthy through business. So Luther uh, was able to begin school at the age of five, and that included training in music, which was a big part of his life later on as well. He went on from school to study at the University of Erfurt. He got a BA and then a master's degree. And at that point, his father Hans expected him to go to law school. And he would have, but for a thunderstorm. Luther had gone home to visit his parents, and on his way back to Erfurt to enroll for his law studies, he was caught out in the open in a severe thunderstorm. He was almost hit by a bolt of lightning, and at that moment, thinking he was going to die, Luther cried out, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. Well, he survived the storm, and so as he promised, five days later, he entered the monastery of the Augustinian hermits. There he is as a younger man with his monk's hairdo. Does anyone know what that is called? Falling out of fashion today. But. Yes, it's unsure. And he was a lot slimmer at this point in his life. The first year in the monastery was a trial year. After that, you had to make a decision. So, at the end of the year, you could leave or you could stay. But if you stayed, you had to make a threefold vow. Lifelong celibacy. Lifelong obedience to the head of the monastery. That was the abbot. And third, lifelong poverty. Later on, Luther looked back and he said, the devil was very quiet during the first year. In other words, the trial period went well and he took his vows at the end of the year. That was the point when things started to get tough for him. And it wasn't tough because Luther rebelled against the lifestyle in the monastery. He threw himself into it wholeheartedly, in fact. 
he was sincerely and severely devout as a monk. He fasted three days every week, he slept without a blanket, and he beat himself with a stick. If he felt he'd recited the daily prayers without the proper feeling, he'd go right back to the start and recite them all over again, which took a long time to do. Something was bothering Luther. And as he tried to deal with it, he was treating his flesh, his body, more and more harshly to try to bring it in line. The thing that was bothering him was his understanding of salvation. What the Roman church taught was, when it comes to your salvation, God does most of the work, and your own effort completes the work. Christ's work by itself was not seen as being enough. That was Luther's own understanding at the time. And it led him then to ask the obvious question, how can I ever know if I've done enough? The answer was, he never could be sure that he'd done enough. And so he could never have assurance of his salvation. Therefore, he could never have any peace. He was tortured because he was very aware of his own weakness and his own sin. There were times when he would go to confession for six hours a day. And to put that in perspective, normally monks went to confession once a week. One day the priest he was confessing to became so frustrated that he told Luther to go away and come back when he had something serious to confess. Luther was tormented. He was doing everything in his power to win God's approval, but he knew it wasn't enough. And so then, predictably, over time, he began to get angry with God. God was demanding perfection, and Luther could not achieve that. God required something Luther was unable to get. And then something happened that added to Luther's disturbed state of mind. His monastery sent him to the city of Rome on an errand. Luther was very excited. This was a chance to visit the holy city, the headquarters of the worldwide church. But when he arrived in Rome, he was not impressed. He saw corruption there. He saw pilgrims being exploited. And his verdict was, after that visit, if there is a hell, then Rome is built on it. So now, not only was Luther incapable of saving himself, he was beginning to have doubts whether the church could save him either. And that leads us on to Luther's discovery of the gospel. In the midst of his inner turmoil, he gained his doctorate in the monastery, and so he became a professor of the Bible. But as we've already seen, the Bible was largely an unknown book at the time. Luther said it was despised in his monastery. Well, that might seem really strange. But religion in the monastery was all about disciplining your body and reciting prayers by rote. The Bible didn't really play much of a part. Luther was the only monk in his monastery who read the Bible. Now, there were colleagues of his who received their doctorates in the Bible, but they didn't know the Bible. The exams were based on books that had been written about the Mass, and on the works of writers like Thomas Aquinas. But Luther got his hands on the copy, a copy of the Bible and he read it intensely, just like everything else that he did. One scholar says, 
Luther developed an extraordinary and phenomenal knowledge of the Bible. To the point where he could give a summary from memory of every chapter in the Bible. If someone quoted a verse, Luther could tell where it came from. He said later, it was that grasp of the Bible that gave him confidence to stand up to the Roman church. And he urged all Christians to thoroughly master the text of Scripture. When he received his doctorate in the Bible, he was 29 years old. He was then given the position of professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. And he kept that position for the next 30 years. So now he's a monk, he's a priest, and he's a professor. But for all of his reading of Scripture, he still hasn't discovered the good news of Scripture, the Gospel. He's still seeing Scripture through the lens of church tradition. But that began to change for him once he started to lecture on Scripture. He began his lectures from the Psalms, then he went on to Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And as he prepared those lectures, slowly the light began to dawn on him. And one new development that helped him massively was a movement called humanism. Again, Steve mentioned this last time, but just to refresh your memory, we use the word humanism today to mean a way of looking at the world that denies God. It says that humans are the highest authority. But when we speak about humanism in reference to Luther's time, we mean something very different from that. Humanism at the time was a movement within education. It called people to go back and study the ancient writers. And the the motto was, ad fontes, back to the source. Let's not just take what we've been heard, let's, let's go back, what we've been told, let's go back and discover for ourselves. And so that included going back to the original texts of the Old and New Testaments. So humanism included a great emphasis on the Greek and Hebrew languages that scripture was originally written in. Now many of those humanists were not believers in the sense that they held to the gospel. They had a purely academic interest in those ancient sources. But they're significant because they produced the tools that were needed for studying the Bible in the original languages. A man called Erasmus was one of the key humanists. He produced an edition of the Greek New Testament. Erasmus and Luther did not agree about the gospel, but Luther was forever grateful to Erasmus for that Greek New Testament. Without it, Luther wouldn't have been able to uncover the truth that had been buried under layers and centuries of church tradition. But with his Greek New Testament, Luther was able to go back and read the original text of Scripture for himself. And as he did, he began to notice subtle ways Scripture had been twisted by the church over the centuries. And one very famous example of that was the word translated in our New Testaments accurately as repentance. In the Latin Bible at the time, it was translated as do penance. That is a pretty major difference. It's saying forgiveness of sins comes from our own works of fasting and prayer and humiliation. But as Luther read his Greek New Testament, he came to realize when God calls us to repent, he's asking us just to turn from our sin 
and turn to him. He's not asking us to try and pay for our sin. Luther saw in scripture that human beings are born as slaves to sin. He knew that in his own life. We can't play a part in our own salvation. But then came the good news as he read on. That we can be forgiven by God and reconciled to God purely on the basis of what Christ has done. When we trust in Christ and his work, God declares us to be righteous. So our salvation is received through faith alone. We don't achieve salvation, we receive it. I think it's best if we listen to this in Luther's own words. He said to begin with, It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. That's the very first step. Coming to the realization that we can't earn salvation, it's something that has to be given to us by God. And then we can say, as Luther went on, I neither look upon my holiness nor upon my unworthiness, but I believe in Jesus Christ, who is both holy and worthy. And whether I be holy or unholy, Yet I am sure and certain that Christ gives himself with all his holiness, worthiness, and what he is and has to be mine own. Or again, if I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. That's called the great exchange. Through faith in Christ, we can say, Jesus has taken my sin. All mine is his. And he has given me his righteousness. All his is mine. Now many religious people in Luther's day and today see Christ primarily as a good example that we're to try and follow. But Luther said, the chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given you and that is your own. When you lay hold of Christ as a gift, which is given you for your own and have no doubt about it, you are a Christian. Now, when you have Christ as the foundation and chief blessing of your salvation, then the other part follows that you take him as your example, giving yourself in service to your neighbor, just as you see that Christ has given himself for you. I think that's really helpful because sometimes the reformers are accused of teaching that good works don't have a part to play in the Christian life. But that's not true. They were concerned not to do away with good works, but to put good works in their proper place. So Luther said, good works do not make you a Christian. They come forth from you because you have already been made a Christian. So we live for God and serve God, not trying to earn his favor. We live for him with the assurance that having trusted in Jesus, we already have God's favor. And those are things that Luther came to see over time as he studied the Bible. And what I've just quoted are things that he wrote 
a bit further down the line in his life. So now at this point we need to back up a little bit and go back to Luther at the stage where he's just beginning to figure all this out as he's teaching the Bible to his students. As Luther was giving these initial lectures, he began to attract a lot of attention. Not only was he presenting ideas that were revolutionary at the time, but he was an incredibly gifted communicator. Like I said, he was a larger-than-life guy. And students began to flock to Wittenberg just to hear and to study under Dr. Martin. The records from the university show that the student numbers literally doubled in size during the years that Luther was teaching there. And so eyes began to turn towards him. And they were not all friendly. Which leads us on then to the conflict with Rome. It's important to realize at this point in his life, Luther had no intention of attacking the church or of breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. He was a teacher studying the Bible. He had no big vision for reforming the church. But then something happened that got him involved in a much wider issue. And the issue that kicked it all off was indulgences. And if we're going to understand indulgences, we need to understand purgatory. The Bible does not mention purgatory. But according to the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the afterlife consisted of Not two places, but three. Heaven, hell, and purgatory. When someone died, even if they were going to end up in heaven, before they could go there, whatever sins had not been paid for by penance during their lifetime, those sins had to be paid for in purgatory after their death. The time you spent in purgatory was in proportion to the amount of sin that had to be paid for. And according to the teaching of the church, it was not a pretty place to be. Now, the whole idea of purgatory is a denial of the gospel. It says that Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to pay for our sin. But that was not initially what drew Luther to get involved in all this. As I said, it was indulgences that sucked him into this. What do they have to do with purgatory? Well, again, according to the teaching of the Roman Church, there were certain individuals who had ended their lives with an excess of merit or an excess of righteousness. These people didn't just break even with God. They had done more than enough to earn his forgiveness. So if most people ended life with a shortfall of merit, these people had an excess at the end. The people in question were Christ and all the saints. All that excess merit supposedly went into a huge chest of merit. And the Pope had the key to that chest. What that meant, according to the teaching of Rome, was that the Pope could distribute some of that excess merit to people who had a shortfall of merit. And the way he did that was by selling indulgences. Every so often, usually when he wanted to build a new cathedral, the Pope would open the chest and he would sell some of the merit. So, for example, if your granny was dead, you could buy a piece of paper that would release her from purgatory. Or at least shorten her time in purgatory. For a small fee, the Pope would take some of the excess merit of Christ and the saints, he would transfer it to your grandmother's account, 
and he'd give you a certificate to prove it. Your granny got an early release from the torments of purgatory, and the Pope got the money to build his new cathedral. Everybody was happy. Until Luther came along. The Pope at the time was Leo X, and his predecessor had started building the massive St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And when Leo became Pope, he needed money if he was going to finish the job. And so to raise the cash, he sent out a man called John Tetzel to sell a special indulgence. Tetzel was a very enthusiastic salesman. To the point where he assured the crowds that this particular indulgence would even work for someone who had raped the Virgin Mary. Another of Tetzel's catchphrases was that as soon as the coin clinked in the money chest, the person's soul flew out of purgatory. Well, he came to Saxony, which is where Luther was, and some of Luther's parishioners bought these indulgences from Tetzel, and that made Luther angry. They were poor people. And at first, Luther's main problem was not a theological problem. He was angry because these poor peasants were being fleeced in the name of God. They were being exploited simply to line the pockets of the church. Why didn't the Pope just give away all the excess merit that he had? But then, Luther began to question not just making money out of indulgences, but the whole idea of indulgences. And he went public with his questions on October the 31st, 1517, so 500 years ago this month. He wrote 95 theses, that's statements to be discussed, and he nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg. It was not unusual to nail things to the church door. It was used as a notice board. But what made this significant was what Luther nailed to that door. There were 95 of these statements. We'll just look at a few examples. Thesis number 32 says, Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Thesis 36. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt even without indulgence letters. Thesis 45. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by, yet gives his money for indulgences, does not buy papal indulgences, but God's wrath. One last example, and this one is aimed at the Pope's treasure chest of merit. Thesis 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Now, at this stage, Luther is just proposing these statements. He wants to have a debate about them. But he had started something that day that would eventually turn Europe upside down. The 95 Theses very quickly made their way to the printers. It's not clear whether Luther intended that to happen. But within weeks, these things were all across Europe. And it seems a copy of them landed on the Pope's doorstep. Now, I realize these theses might seem kind of obscure to us, but they were explosive statements at the time. And the Pope's reaction shows that. 
He tried to silence Luther by sending some heavyweight theologians to deal with him. But the approach that they took was just to come and declare that the Pope had ultimate authority. They didn't really debate the issues Luther was trying to raise. They just tried to shout him down and call him a heretic for challenging indulgences. But Luther replied that God's word had ultimate authority. And so very, very quickly, the heart of the issue moved away from indulgences and onto this question of authority. Who had the final word in the church? Was it the Pope? Or was it Scripture? That's what it came down to very quickly. And over the next several years, Luther was summoned to various interviews and inquisitions in different places, all with the aim of making him recant. But in fact, it had the opposite outcome. The more that his views were attacked, the more that he was forced to respond to his opponents, Luther's own views became more and more clear. He became more sure of himself and more bold in the things that he said. And looking back at that time in his life, Luther said, God led me on. As he continued to study the Bible, he began to see more errors in what the Roman church had been teaching. He became more sure of his position. And the fact is, Luther had a sharper mind than his opponents did. Not only did he know scripture better, he knew the laws and decrees of the Roman church better than his opponents did. He could tie them in knots. He could prove his opponents were not only contradicting the Bible, they were even contradicting the official laws and decrees of the church. And one of Luther's tactics was that if a Catholic theologian wrote a letter attacking him, Luther would add a little introduction to the letter, explaining how weak the arguments were. Then he'd take it to the printer and he'd have it published. So the Pope and his friends just couldn't win. Luther was publishing their own ideas for them. But by adding a few devastating comments of his own, he was making his opponents look ridiculous. As we think about this, it's hard for us to overestimate the impact that the printing press had. It had only recently been invented. I think that was in God's providence at just the right time. And it allowed ideas to spread in a way that had never been possible before. At the time, it was probably more world-changing than the Internet has been in recent decades for us. Before the printing press was invented, the only way to produce a book or a pamphlet was to copy the thing by hand. And the monasteries had rooms where monks would do that. And the books that they produced were beautiful works of art. But it was a million miles away from mass production. Luther arrived on the scene when mass production was possible for the first time. He could write a pamphlet, and a week later, thousands of people could be reading it all across Europe. One printing press could produce a thousand copies a day, and that might not seem much to us, but compare that with how many handwritten copies could be made in a day, maybe six or seven. And because they were mass-produced, they could be sold dirt cheap. Anyone could afford them. And that meant the Roman church simply couldn't contain Luther's ideas. 
At the height of his activity, he was producing new material every week. In fact, his output was so huge at the time that three printers were employed full-time to keep up with publishing his work. Well, as this was going on, finally, a letter from the Pope came giving Luther 60 days to recant, or he would be excommunicated. In other words, he would be declared to be outside of the church, which meant the church was pronouncing him to be damned to hell. There could be no salvation outside the church. That was the understanding. And true to form, Luther responded by publicly burning the Pope's letter. Soon after that, he was called to a major debate at a place called Worms. And Luther fully expected that he would be executed as a heretic after that debate. On his way to Worms, crowds cheered him along the way. And Luther wondered, was this his own Palm Sunday on the way to his death? Well, at Worms, Luther gave what is probably his most famous speech. His interrogator told him he had no right to question the authority of the church. And he said to Luther, answer candidly and without horns. In other words, don't try to distract us from the main issues. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors they contain? And this was Luther's response. Since then, your majesty, he's talking about the emperor Charles V, who was there. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot... And I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, Amen. What was the outcome of that? Well, Luther was given a further 21 days to recant, or he would be executed. But then the situation took a surprise twist because on his way home from Worms, Luther was ambushed and kidnapped. But it was not by his enemies. The kidnapping was a setup by his old friend, Frederick the Wise. He did it to get Luther into hiding. So for the next ten months, Luther lived in a castle called the Wartburg and only a few very close friends knew where he was. He disappeared. And that brings us then to Luther away from the cameras. And we'll update the picture at this point. New hairstyle. What did he get up to when he was not facing the power of Rome? Well, he was terribly depressed during his time in the Wartburg. He believed the devil was tormenting him. He did a great deal of shouting at the devil. He even threw things at the devil, including his inkwell. He also became obsessed with his health, particularly his bowels. And we know that because his letters to friends continually mention his bowels. And I mention it because that's just the kind of man he was. 
the pressure he'd been under for years was getting to him. It was getting to him mentally and physically. And no doubt he really was under spiritual attack. But depressed as he was, he managed to do a massive amount of work. In 11 weeks, he translated the entire New Testament into German. The Old Testament took him a bit longer, but he did that too. And many scholars say Luther's translation of the Bible was his greatest achievement. It made the Bible available to ordinary German people. And his translation was very, very good. He did painstaking work to find the right German words for the Greek and Hebrew. In disguise, he would, he could leave the castle, and when he was translating the sections in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, he visited slaughterhouses in Germany so he could find just the right word for the sacrifices when he was translating. And, I have to mention as well, for a time, he questioned whether some books really should be in the Bible, especially the book of James. He called it a right strawy epistle. But later, it does seem, he changed his mind on the book of James. And his doubts about it at the time were probably because of the way certain people were misusing the book at the time. He came to accept it eventually. And after Luther came out of hiding, he continued to have a massive output on lots of different subjects and issues, just about everything you could imagine he wrote about it. And it has to be said, he could be crude, he could be rude, and he could be terribly insulting. Part of that was just the way people disagreed with each other at the time. We think social media is bad today, and it, it can be. But it was normal at the time to call your opponent all kinds of horrible things. Luther's opponent certainly did it to him. But Luther was probably a bit rougher around the edges than was normal even back then. I think that's fair to say. And he knew it about himself. This is what he said. I was born to take the field and fight with the hordes and the devil. And therefore my books are very stormy and warlike. I have to dig out the roots and trunks, cut down the thorns and hedges and fill up the pools. I am the crude lumberjack who has to blaze a trail and prepare the way. So other people, well, they could be moderated in the way they went about things, like his good friend Philip Melanchthon, who was a much more moderate character. But as far as Luther was concerned, that was not the part God had given him to play. He was the lumberjack. But having said that about cutting things down, Luther did see a great need to build up and to equip Christians who were breaking away from the Roman church. And he took on that task. Part of the way he tried to do that was by writing catechisms. Those are series of questions and answers to help people learn biblical truth. And even illiterate people could memorize those questions and answers. He produced catechisms for adults and for children. And in the middle of all this, he got married. Over a period of time, he'd been encouraging monks that they should break their vows of celibacy and marry. He saw the difficulties that came about when people were forbidden to marry. 
And he believed that marriage was a good gift from God. And then, one day, twelve nuns arrived on Luther's doorstep. These particular nuns had been smuggled out of a convent in barrels. They were given to Luther, sort out. He had the job of finding homes and or husbands for them. And he succeeded with all but one of them, Catherine von Bora. And so he married her himself. He was 42, she was 26. There's the happy couple. Actually, they don't look all that happy. Let's try another one. Luther seemed a bit bemused by the whole situation. He wrote to a friend, Undoubtedly, the rumor of my marriage has reached you. I can hardly believe it myself. But the witnesses are far too strong. He wrote to another friend, There's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow which were not there before. So it might not have been a very romantic beginning, but they did come to love each other deeply. At one point Luther began to worry that he thought too highly of Katie. He said, I give more credit to Catherine than to Christ, who has done so much more for me. Catherine was a strong woman, she needed to be, and she was very good for Martin. She organized and ran their household, which was a pretty chaotic place, between the farm animals and the visitors and the students that were always flocking to his house. In fact, several of his students sat at the dinner table writing down everything Luther said. His mealtime comments were published in a book called Table Talk. Thousands of threw away comments that he made at the dinner table. Catherine also doctored Martin through his many health problems. He reckoned that those were caused by his extreme fasting earlier in his life. He had a lot of health difficulties. She brewed his beer, which he enjoyed, and she reckoned it helped him with his insomnia and his kidney stones. I doubt that there's much uh, medical Evidence for that, but anyway, the couple also had six children. And we have some of the letters that Luther wrote to his children. And those letters show a tender side that didn't always appear in his theological writing. He felt very strongly about the responsibilities of parents. He said, most certainly father and mother are apostles, bishops, and priests to their children for it is they who make them acquainted with the gospel. What else did Luther do? Well, he prayed. In fact, as hard as this is to believe, his biographers tell us he spent at least three of the best hours of the day in prayer. He preached. We still have 2,300 of his sermons that we can read. He continued to study his Bible every day because, he said, I don't want to fall into the notion that I know the Scriptures well enough. He wrote letters to give people counsel and encouragement. And again, we have plenty of those we can read. I'll just mention one of them. One day Martin went to get his hair cut 
His barber was a man called Peter. He was a man who had a difficult life. He'd been in a lot of trouble, and he told Luther as he was snipping away at his hair that he had real difficulty trying to pray. So Luther went home and he wrote a very down-to-earth letter to Peter, full of advice on prayer, things that had worked for Martin himself. And that booklet, that letter was later published as a booklet, and it was called A Simple Way to Pray for a Good Friend. So Luther could deal with the Pope, and he could deal with his barber, and he could give serious attention to both. He was that kind of man. He also composed hymns and the music to go with them in many cases. His most famous hymn is known to us by the name A Mighty Fortress is Our God, or sometimes A Safe Stronghold, Our God is Still, depending on how it's translated. As well as writing music, he loved to sing and he loved to play the lute. He said this about music. I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. Luther died in 1546 at the age of 63. He was a man with plenty of flaws. He could be harsh at times, He could be stubborn about things he didn't need to be stubborn about. He could fall out with people he didn't need to fall out with. But I think his two greatest traits were his confidence in God's word and his courage. In the beginning of all this, he stood basically alone against the power of the Roman church. And the courage that he had came from his confidence in God's word. For Luther, there was no other authority. His own thinking and the entire Church of Rome had to be conformed to Scripture. Never the other way around. As he said himself, and I think this just about sums him up, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. You and I live in a time when we need a similar confidence in God's Word. We need Similar courage to stand against the tide in our own time. And I hope that Luther inspires us in that. That's all I have planned to say. Don't forget the film on Thursday night. Get here a few minutes early if you can. I don't know if there will be any popcorn. And if you don't have a book and a poster, do get one at the end. But we have a few minutes. If you have any questions, I can't promise I'll be able to answer them if you go beyond my knowledge on this, but I can try. We have a mic.